This is History West Midlands. At the heart of Birmingham stands its iconic town hall. Modelled on a Roman temple, it reflects the time when this city was universally recognised as an exemplar of good governance and civic pride. Described in this programme by well-known historian Carl Chin as the most democratic and egalitarian of Birmingham's civic buildings, this has been the most important forum for the expression of the vibrant and often radical political life of the town. From its stage, great political orators such as Joseph Chamberlain and Lloyd George delivered speeches which shaped the history of Britain and the world. Memorably, they often roused their Birmingham audiences to respond with passion and, at times, even violence. On other very different occasions, the Town Hall hosted great cultural events. When the building opened in 1834, it was one of the first purpose-built symphonic halls in Europe, predating even those of Vienna and Amsterdam, both of which copied Birmingham's acoustically brilliant interior. Unsurprisingly, some of the famous composers of the age, Mendelssohn, Grieg, Sibelius and Elgar, chose this as the place for the premieres of some of their greatest works. Across Birmingham, music was an integral part of daily civic life, and the town hall was also the scene of great non-musical performances. Professor Chin begins his portrayal with one of the most famous of these. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. So begins A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. First published in December 1843, it was a tremendous success and it played a vital role in the emergence of what is now hailed as a traditional Christmas. Ten years later, Dickens gave his very first public readings from that book in Birmingham at the Town Hall over three nights at Christmas time. It surprises many to learn that this acclaimed novelist did so, given that Dickens is so bonded with London through his compelling stories and fascinating characters. But Dickens had a deep and long-standing connection with our city, one which he held dear. His first book, The Pickwick Papers, was published in 1837, the same year as Queen Victoria came to the throne, and it set him on the path of literary acclaim. It included a brief account of Sam Weller and Mr Pickwick arriving in Birmingham, and it captured the essence of our town, the clamour of manufacture. It was still dark as the fictional pair came along the old road from Bristol in a stagecoach. As they did so, the paths were covered with cinders and brick dust. Furnace fires glowed a deep red in the distance. Volumes of dense smoke issued from high, toppling chimneys and blackened and obscured everything around. Distant lights glared and ponderous wagons toiled along the road, laden with clashing rods of iron, or else were piled with heavy goods. All these features betokened their rapid approach to the great working town of Birmingham. Then, as Pickwick and Weller entered the rombustuous town, Dickens powerfully grasped the dynamism and excitement that was Birmingham in a notable paragraph. 
as they rattled through the narrow thoroughfares leading to the heart of the turmoil. The sights and sounds of earnest occupation struck more forcibly on the senses. The hum of labor resounded from every house. Lights gleamed from the long casement windows in the attic stories, and the whirl of wheels and noise of machinery shook the trembling walls. The fires, whose lurid, sullen light had been visible for miles, blazed fiercely up in the great works and factories of the town. The din of hammers, the rushing of steam, and the dead, heavy clanking of engines was the harsh music which arose from every quarter. Short as it is, yet is this one of the most compelling and insightful descriptions of Birmingham as it thrust itself onto the world stage as the city of a thousand trades. Dickens himself made plain his fondness for Birmingham on several occasions. On February the 28th, 1844, he gave a speech in the town. He declared that... Birmingham is, in my mind and in the minds of most men, associated with many giants and went on to praise the public spirit of the town, the name and fame of its capitalists and working men, the greatness and importance of its merchants and manufacturers, its inventions, which were constantly in progress, and the skill and intelligence of its artisans, which were daily developed. A passionate support of education and of extending educational opportunity to working men, Dickens returned to Birmingham in December 1853 for those three memorable nights of seasonal readings at the town hall. He did so to raise funds for the Birmingham and Midland Institute. Aris's Birmingham Gazette reported that the first of the readings had been from a Christmas carol, and despite the inclemency of the weather, nearly 2,000 persons had attended. The high mimetic powers possessed by Mr Dickens enabled him to personate with remarkable force the various characters of the story and with admirable skill to pass rapidly from the hard, unbelieving Scrooge to trusting and thankful Bob Cratchit, and from the genial fullness of Scrooge's nephew to the hideous mirth of the party assembled in old Joe the ragshop keeper's parlour. The reading occupied more than three hours, but so interested with the audience that few left before the end, whilst... Loud and frequent bursts of applause attested the successful discharge of the reader's arduous task. The next evening, Dickens had read The Cricket on the Hearth, but it was the Friday night reading from A Christmas Carol that had aroused the most expectation and excitement, for it was... To a large assemblage of workpeople, for whom, at Mr Dickens' special request, the major part of the vast edifice was reserved. Before he began, Dickens delivered a brief address, almost every sentence of which was received with loudly expressed applause. My good friends... When I imparted to the committee of the projected institute my particular wish that on one of the evenings of my readings here the main body of my audience should be composed of working men and their families, I was animated by two desires. First, by the wish to have the great pleasure of meeting you face to face at this Christmas time and accompany you, myself, through one of my little Christmas books. And second, 
by the wish to have an opportunity of stating publicly in your presence and in the presence of the committee my earnest hope that the Institute will, from the beginning, recognize one great principle, strong in reason and justice, which I believe to be essential to the very life of such an institution. It is that the working man shall, from the first unto the last, have a share in the management of an institution which is designed for his benefit and which calls itself by his name. Just imagine the thrill of working class people knowing that the great Charles Dickens had insisted that one night of his readings should be for their benefit. But of course, Dickens was the people's writer. Had he not also been poor? Had he not also endured hard times? Had he not also had to suffer indignities because his father had served time in a debtor's jail? And had he not also laboured long in bad conditions for little money? No wonder that on that December evening the working people of Birmingham came in their hundreds upon hundreds to listen to him. After handing over sixpence, two and a half pence in new money, they headed inside. With the great hall filled with more than 2,000 folk, a hush spread across the crowd. Stretching their heads forwards and lifting their eyes upwards, they fixed their gazes on the stage as on walked this small, balding man. His groomed black beard caught the eyes and from there the looks shifted swiftly to a book which he had tucked beneath one arm. The assembly began to applaud and Dickens made a small bow composed himself, looked around and waited for the clapping to fade. At the close of the reading, Dickens received a vote of thanks with three cheers, thrice times three. As soon as the enthusiasm of the audience calmed, he addressed that great gathering of working people, explaining that, I am truly and sincerely interested in you that any little service I have rendered to you, I have freely rendered from my heart, that I hope to become an honorary member of your great institution and will meet you often there when it becomes practically useful. And what a setting was the town hall for Dickens to give the first of his public readings, for it was the pride of Birmingham and it belonged to the people. Sighted on that ridge which runs above the northern banks of the River Ray, it drew all eyes to it. Folk were inspired not only by the building's great size and imposing position, but also by its powerful look. As if it were a classical temple, it called out to the times of ancient Rome and asserted that Birmingham too was now a city-state of stature. The town had never boasted such a building. There were factories which visitors came to see, such as the famed Sower Works of Matthew Bolton. Churches which gained attention, like the superb St Philip's designed by Thomas Archer in the Italianate form. Public buildings like the atmospheric market hall and the odd grand house which caused some interest like that of John Baskerville on Easy Hill. 
but Birmingham is renowned for the style and cunning of its wares, not for the design and cleverness of its buildings, that is, until the town hall rose up in glory as Birmingham's first great civic building. The idea of a town hall arose because of the triennial music festivals. From 1784, these had been held to raise money for the General Hospital, then off Summer Lane. They took place in St Philip's Cathedral and in the Theatre Royal, but so successful were the festivals that a larger venue was needed for the crowds that attended. Led by Joseph Moore, their festival committee pressed for the construction of a town hall. They were supported by other notable citizens who felt that Birmingham needed a major public building to reflect its status as one of Britain's leading cities. A festival committee was formed to press forward with the project and pressurised by its members and some of the ratepayers, the idea of a town hall took hold amongst the street commissioners, the body of unelected men which served as Birmingham's only form of local government until 1838 when the council began. Eventually, a location was chosen on Paradise Street at the top of Hill Street and after it was purchased in 1830, Hansom and Welsh were taken on as the architects. A talented young man, Joseph Aloysius Hansom, is remembered for his design of the Hansom Cab. He was also appointed as the contractor for the building of the town hall. Now, he'd estimated that the work would cost £17,000 with about £1,700 for extras. But in fact, the spending reached £25,000 and unfortunately, this overshoot led to his bankruptcy. Work started in 1832 and the town hall was opened on September the 19th, 1834, although it was not finished properly until 1849 and the later stages of its construction were carried out under the direction of the architect Charles Edge. Still, Although the town hall was completed by another architect, it remains a magnificent monument to the skill, ingenuity and ability of Hansom. A stunning example of Roman revival civic architecture, it was based upon the Roman temple of Castor and Pollux and was erected in the Corinthian style with impressive columns surrounding the main structure. A few days before its opening, a reporter from the Times declared that it was a splendid building. And that, as you ascend the main street, you might suppose yourself to be at Athens. He went on to muse. How strange that it should be left to the people of Birmingham to show us what the ancients have done. Made with brick dug up from the earth of Sally Oak, the town hall was faced with Anglesey marble. It dominated Birmingham skyline and it was praised as a remarkable attempt to apply to modern purposes a style of structure which belonged essentially to the Greek temples. Inside the town hall, its crowning glory was its organ, which had cost nearly £4,000. In 1849, it was acclaimed in White's Directory of Birmingham as magnificent. It boasted the following dimensions. The organ case is 40 feet wide, 40 feet high and 17 feet deep. The largest wood pipe measures in the interior 224 cubic feet. The bellows contain 300 square feet of surface and upwards of three tons weight are required to give the necessary pressure. It is calculated that the trackers in the organ, if laid out in straight lines, would reach above five miles. There are 78 draw stops, four sets of keys and above 4,000 pipes. The weight of the instrument is about 45 tons and in the depth... Power, variety and sweetness of tone, 
far surpasses any in Europe. That autumn day then, in September 1834, when the town hall opened for the Triennial Music Festival, the people of Birmingham were determined to see what indeed they had shown to the rest of Britain. By nine o'clock, dense crowds had surrounded the building. Long before the performances began at eleven, the nearby streets, especially New Street, were... Choked with carriage parties and pedestrians hurrying to the opening, or else rallying around the town hall for the purpose of viewing the company as they arrived. Amongst the 2,500 who were invited to attend the opening were an earl and countess, lords and ladies, bishops, baronets, members of parliament, a variety of gentlemen and a numerous assemblage of musical professors. Unhappily, in none of the newspaper reports was any mention made of the families of the two workmen who had died in the construction of a building that was the pride of Birmingham. They were John Heap and William Badger. On Saturday, January the 26th, 1833, they had been involved in raising the principles of the town hall roof via new machinery. In total, there were ten such trusses that would form part of the main framework of the building. Each weighed four tons. Over the previous few days, six had been successfully lifted into place, but then, as the seventh was about to be lowered on the wall, the hook of the pulley block, by which one end of the principle was suspended, snapped asunder. The huge truss fell to the ground from a height of 65 feet and, according to Aris's Birmingham Gazette, by its shock, tore the crane from the opposite wall, which, striking several of the workmen, precipitated two of them to the bottom. Two others were thrown onto a lower stage of scaffolding, about 10 feet down. One of them was John Heap, a carver, who fell on his head. Sadly, he died within two hours because of the grave injury to his brain. The other man miraculously escaped unhurt. As for the two workers who had fallen from the greater height, John Fawcett had his arm broken, which was then reset, and the other had his ankle so badly fractured that he had to have part of his leg amputated at the General Hospital. He was William Badger, aged 25, who lived in Suffolk Street. Like his workmate, he was a stonemason and was praised as a fine, hearty young man of exemplary conduct. He seemed to be recovering from his terrible injury, but then, in late February, his health suddenly dropped and he died. The newspaper reported that, Most providentially, those of the workmen who were under the principle at the moment of the hook giving way had sufficient time to enable them to avoid the impending danger. Two other men, escaped in a singular manner. One of them perceived the imminent peril they were in and instantly crouched down, pulling his companion with him between two large blocks of stone upon which the principal fell. As for the pulley block that had broken, it was a new one that had been ordered for the purpose. It was supposed to be able to carry upwards of five times the weight that it was sustaining. Despite this, an inquest recorded that this melancholy occurrence at the town hall was purely accidental and that no blame was attached to either the architects or contractors. The other man who was killed, John Heap, had lived in Bishopsgate Street and left a widow, Anne Nee Cluley, aged 26. She had been married for less than seven years and now she and her two children were bereft of their main provider. Two days after the tragedy, Edward Bartlett and Reuben Colley placed a notice in the Gazette under the heading Appeal to Humanity. Stonemasons, they requested a meeting of trade and others to take into consideration the most prompt method 
to relieve the suffering families connected with the awful accident at the town hall and to express our sincere regret at the death of our excellent friend and fellow workman, John Heap. That meeting was held the next night, Tuesday, January 29th, at the Rose and Crown in Edgbaston Street. It was very well attended by stonemasons and others, amongst whom was Joseph Hansom, who took the chair. A subscription was started for the relief of John Heap's widow and two children, with the aim of providing her with an annuity. The building contractor contributed £5, and the architect and his partner, Edward Welsh, another £10. Hansom also stated that they intended to provide for the families of the two workers in the hospital until they were perfectly recovered. It was further resolved to erect a monument to the memory of John Heap, who was buried in the churchyard of St Philip's on Thursday, January the 31st. His funeral was attended by the whole body of workmen involved in the construction of the town hall, as well as by Hansom and the builders. After his death in the General Hospital, William Badger was interred in the same vault. The monument later placed upon it consisted of a portion of the last column worked on by John Heap. It stood upon a pedestal executed by his fellow workmen as a memorial of their respect for his character. Despite the tragedy associated with its building, the town hall grabbed the affections of all Brummies because it drew in all kinds of people as well as all kinds of events. In 1846, Mendelssohn's Elijah was first performed there, having been commissioned for the Triennial Festival. And like Dickens, the great composer was fascinated by work as the essence of Birmingham. During his stay, he drew a pen and ink sketch that showed a train passing before a host of factory chimneys and workshops that were crowding around the town hall, all of which were framed within the imposing arch of a viaduct. In that drawing, Mendelssohn identified another characteristic of Birmingham, a vigorous bond between manufacturing and the arts, for embedded as it was within an industrial landscape, yet was the town hall, the cultural centre of the town and the setting for Mendelssohn's great oratorio. The intimate relationship between culture and the making of things was articulated powerfully by another renowned composer, Dvorak, who premiered his new work, Requiem, at the Town Hall in 1891. In a letter, he declared that, I'm here in this immense industrial city where they make excellent knives, scissors, springs, files, and goodness knows what else. And besides these, music too. And how well. It's terrifying how much the people here manage to achieve. It was also on the town hall stage that Elgar's choral work, The Dream of Garantius, was first performed in 1900 after it was commissioned for performance for the Triennial Festival. But the town hall was more than a venue for music festivals. It was a great meeting place. In 1858, Queen Victoria visited Birmingham for the first time to open Aston Hall and Park. According to Cornish's Guide to Birmingham, The magnificent building was gorgeously decorated for the occasion. The royal party entered the hall amidst the thundering of cannon, the pealing of the national anthem, and the roar of thousands of voices. Her Majesty, having taken her place before the throne, the Mayor, Mr. Ratcliffe, presented an address on behalf of the corporation, to which Her Majesty made a gracious reply. An address was also presented to the Prince Consort, and, his reply having been received, Her Majesty commanded the Mayor to kneel, and, touching him with the sword on both shoulders, desired him to rise up, Sir John. 
In his insightful book, Walks in the Black Country from 1868, Elihu Burritt discerned the importance of the town hall as a meeting place. The American consul to Birmingham, he declared that it was the most symmetrical and classical building in England and looks like one of the grand edifices of ancient Greece, transported in all its grace and glory to stand up in the midst of a city full of modern buildings. The Madeleine in Paris and the Girard College in Philadelphia are the only buildings I ever saw with which this hall may be compared. Indeed, the three are copies of the same original, the Temple of Jupiter Stator at Rome. The town hall's interior was well fitted for the great voices of public opinion and the voices tuned to gentler melodies. For it is not only a public building, but a public institution in itself. It is a great educational agency for the enlightenment of the masses. It has played a great part in forming the public spirit and character of Birmingham. Here, the population have met, almost en masse, from year to year, and been moved and moulded by eloquent orators who seemed to draw new power from the platform on which they stood. Burrett himself had witnessed many speeches in the town hall over a 20-year period and always thought that it must have presented the most inspiring spectacle to the speaker. In particular, the scene from the platform when the famed MP for Birmingham, John Bright, is shaking the very walls with his eloquence, is grand almost to sublimity. The floor of the hall is cleared of every seat and seemingly half an acre of solid men with eager and upturned faces a surging to and fro as if the breath of the orator were moving on the face of the human sea and it were heaving in a groundswell under the power of his thoughts. Before the coming of television and the soundbite, national politicians had to be orators. They had to know how to hold the attention of a large number of people and they had to deal with hecklers. William Gladstone and Joseph Chamberlain did so as successfully as John Bright, but one great speaker had little chance to show off his eloquence. On December the 18th, 1901, the Liberal politician Lloyd George attacked Joseph Chamberlain, the uncrowned King of Birmingham, over his support for the Second South African War against the Boers. Unwisely, the Welshman tried to speak to a tumultuous crowd of Brummies determined to defend our Joe in the town hall. They hurled insults and threats at Lloyd George and he had to escape the riotous meeting and raucous crowds outside, dressed as a policeman. By contrast, musical events gained positive publicity for Birmingham. In reporting on the 1870 Triennial Music Festival, the Daily News referred to The Noble Hall its vast size lessened in appearance by the harmony of its proportions, was quite filled. Magnificent choruses were given as they are seldom heard elsewhere than in Birmingham. Every gradation of tone was admirably realised, from the gentlest pianissimo to the grandest forte. In the 20th century, popular music also found a fitting setting in the town hall and sometimes it was associated with political causes as with Paul Robeson, the great black American singer and civil rights supporter. The late Hilda Burnett was one of those there on this occasion. She told me... In 1957, the old place really came to life for me. There was a big Labour Party meeting there and I discovered that my hero, Paul Robeson, was the guest of honour. I took my daughter along because he was one of my favourite people from back in the 1930s. He sang all his songs and gave a speech, then led us all in singing The Red Flag. We went backstage later and I got his autograph. 
He stood upright like a tower of strength. It made my day to meet him. Hilda also recalled that Councillor Percy Shermer, later MP for Sparkbrook, used to give great parties for poor kids in the town hall in the 1930s, whilst Roy Whitehouse remembered that a decade later... As a teenager, I would rush to the Jazz of the Town Hall series of concerts. Remember that jazz wasn't to be heard on the radio at that time, and to hear it in the classical splendour of the Town Hall was quite amazing. Not only were there bands from other cities like London, Manchester and Nottingham, but many local lads who joined forces. The names that spring to mind include the Gully Low Stompers, Gut Bucket Six and later the Second City Jazz Band. At a later date, I was also drawn to the Town Hall. I'd been there in 1969 in my first year at Mosey Grammar School when our speech day had taken place in that wonderful setting. But the occasion that really stands out for me is of seeing the group Slade there as a 16-year-old in November 1972. We had seen Slade a few months before at the top rank in Dale End where they had appeared with status quo and their stomping music really got to us. So, when we heard that they would be back in Brum again, we were determined to get tickets. A few weeks before the concert, at about five o'clock on one cold morning, we had got up really early to catch the buzz into town. When we arrived there, it was strangely quiet and still, and we headed straight to the town hall to queue for hours to buy our tickets, and we were thrilled to do so. Slade were our group. Not only were they local, but also they sang about places in the West Midlands. And they spoke proudly in their local accents whilst they spelled the words in their song titles the way that we pronounced them. The town hall that night was packed. Noddy Holder, the lead singer, got all the Walls fans chanting, then all the Blues fans, the Villa fans, the Albion fans and the Walsall fans. But there was no trouble because we stomped all the way through till we were drenched with sweat. Despite its popularity, by the 1980s it was becoming obvious that the town hall was in need of renovation because of its age. But sadly, it seemed to fall away from the consciousness of leading figures in Birmingham. Then, with the opening of Symphony Hall in 1991, some people actually thought that the town hall was becoming obsolete. Eventually, and unfortunately, it was closed in July 1996. That was the catalyst for a grassroots campaign for the reopening of the Grade 1 listed town hall. Its stalwarts kept up the pressure on local politicians, urging them to seek the funding necessary to refurbish the building. They did so by collecting a huge petition, by setting up stalls at events, by gaining publicity in the Birmingham Mail and by their dogged resolve. The campaigners were successful, helped by the growing awareness of national bodies that the town hall was slipping into danger, and by a few councillors who also realised its importance to Birmingham and to its people. Thankfully, in December 1999, the Heritage Lottery Fund granted the council £10 million, a sum which was later increased by an extra £3.7 million for work on the town hall. With a large amount from the City Council itself, £35 million was eventually spent and the Town Hall was reopened to acclaim on October the 4th, 2007. Its capacity had now been reduced from over 2,000 to 1,100, half that of the Symphony Hall. Both venues, though, were now to be run on a complementary basis, with the Town Hall focusing on recitals, chamber concerts and more intimate events. Alfred Hickling of The Guardian captured the joy and optimism around the reopening, 
emphasising that it restored a much-loved, iconic building which formed a significant part of the musical fabric of the whole country. In particular... The town hall has been returned to its former glory. The massive columns have regained their pristine whiteness. Acoustically detrimental balconies added in the 1920s have been removed and the interior returned to the way it looked when it hosted what was then one of the world's most significant and long-running music festivals. So many celebrated performers have appeared at the town hall, including Sir Benjamin Britten, Sir Yehudi Menuhin, Sir Adrian Bolt, Sir Simon Rattle, Buddy Holly, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Black Sabbath and ELO. But the town hall was always more than a place for performance. Then as now, it is the most democratic and egalitarian of Birmingham's civic buildings. As such, it remains as the great public meeting place of the people of Birmingham. Enjoy more of Professor Carl Chin's journeys into the history of Birmingham in films, podcasts and articles at our website www.historywm.com where you can also watch our fascinating film Historic Birmingham Town Hall. Don't miss upcoming programmes. Register for our regular newsletter and download the History West Midlands On Air app from the iTunes App Store.